What's up, guys? This is Mike. This is Dave, and you're listening to the Mike and Dave Podcast. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Mike and Dave Podcast. This is Dave, and we're excited to bring you episode six. And uh, I don't know, man. In the last episode, we were we introed the show by talking about how excited we were for the Hawks playing the Bucks, and we thought they had a really good chance. And uh, now, obviously, fast forward two weeks, and the Bucks are playing the Suns in the finals. How quickly things change. This is Mike, and I'll be the first to say I was super, super wrong about the Suns. They're in the finals. I wish it were the Hawks facing them instead of the Bucks, but hey, we took the Bucks to six games, and we did so without DeAndre Hunter. Trey Young got hurt in that series, and I don't know that a fully healthy Hawks team loses that series. I'm not saying that's a guaranteed win, but with that being said, I feel like I'm really happy about the Hawks season. Uh, I'm really optimistic going into next year, mainly because of A, Trey Young, and B, Nate McMillan. I feel like it was clear since he started or since he took over as coach that Nate McMillan is one of the best, has been one of the best coaches in basketball. And so I think this gives us a lot to build off of last year or next year. Sorry. There's no other way to feel than to be proud of the team for the way that they performed this year. I would say they maybe internally, they, they were saying, let's go for the championship at the beginning of the season. I think everybody knows that, their goal was to make the playoffs and and have their first playoff basketball with Trey Young and this core in place. And they accomplished that. And obviously they exceeded that as well, coming within two games of the finals. So hats off to the to the Hawks coaching staff, the players, everyone involved with the organization. Um, I think the Hawks really made a name for themselves and gained some respect, which we know Atlanta teams typically don't. Not only do they not get the respect, a lot of times they don't deserve it, but in this case, they did. And uh, especially, you know, hearkening back to a couple, you know, a few episodes ago, when we were complaining about the media bias for the Knicks, Hawks ended up blowing those projections out of the water. And, um, yeah. And the finals has been interesting to watch as well. I, you know, I just can't get over Chris Middleton. Like this man just went nuclear for the past, for the last two games of the Hawks series. And like, well, him, Drew Holiday and Brooke Lopez all did well, but like Chris Middleton was just making all kinds of crazy shots. Like when he's on, he can literally make any shot. It doesn't even matter. And, and you just expect it to go in, but He's just so inconsistent. I mean, when when he's on, like the Bucks are are, are going to win pretty much. And if he's not on, like we saw Giannis score like forty something points and have a crazy game, and and then still lose in game two. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting one to to see um, Chris Middleton and how he can go so hot and then so cold. And he's been like that for years too. This isn't some new trend. 
this is what's been holding them back for like the past three years, let's say, because Giannis has won back-to-back MVPs before this season. And, you know, we look at them as having the one seed both of those years and go, what's holding them back? It was the inconsistent play of Chris Middleton. Like you said, when he's balling, the Bucks are really freaking hard to beat because Giannis, you know what you're going to get from him. You're in all likelihood going to get at least like 27, 28 points. You're going to get close to, if not more than 10 rebounds. You'll probably get a decent amount of assists and you're going to get great defense. What you're not going to get is that perimeter shooting and setting up those perimeter shots, like in terms of shot creation for yourself. And that's why the Bucks need Chris Middleton to ball out. And what we saw here in game four was Chris Middleton finding that shot, dropping, is it 43? It's like 42, 43, something like that. Yeah. He had a couple more points than Devin Booker, I believe. And he's doing it late too. Like, I'm sure you saw that statistic comparing him to LeBron. Like, it was, it was like in the span of like a single postseason, he's made, I think, 15 go ahead baskets or tying baskets in the fourth quarter, um, which is the most by anyone other than LeBron in the last like 25 years in a single postseason. I'm going to, I'm just going to, throw it out there. There was probably ESPN that came up with that statistic since it was comparing it to LeBron. I feel like that's their like baseline is like, let's just find out the statistic in comparison to LeBron. Cause that's like the standard for everything, which to be fair, like, yes, LeBron is great, but it's just, it's kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to be, yeah. To be fair, you got a top five player ever, pretty much you being compared to him is nice. And then they also had that, comparison of Giannis to Shaq with the back-to-back 40 and 10 games in the finals. So you got players on the Bucks doing big things. Now it's a two to two series at the time that we're recording this. And one more thing I want to say that block by Giannis in game four against Aiton's alley-oop. I've rewatched that probably 15 times now. That is one of the better, at least defensive plays in the finals that I've seen in a long, long time. You could compare like, it to LeBron's block a few years ago. <laughs> and I'm sure all the all the uh, radio shows and TV shows are doing it. The, what made it so special, <laughs> not this one, what made it so special isn't just that he blocked Aiton's dunk. He stepped up and defended Booker first and made Booker have to pass instead of take the shot, then turned around and off the back foot was able to then stop DeAndre Ayton's block. So he's playing one-on-two defense in the finals and doing it phenomenally. Well, not just that, but in the last two minutes of the game and like a very crucial point. And I mean, if you think about it, like the Suns are still in good position because they won their two home games. Bucks won their two home games. So it just, you know, if it just continues like this and the Suns will win. They say a series starts when the home team loses. Yeah, that's true. And you, it would be easy to say the Bucks have all the momentum now. But again, they were playing at home. The Suns had all the, you know, all the momentum when they were playing at home. So game, uh, people always say game five is like the, 
the most crucial game. Um, Cause you know, you can obviously then you have to win two in a row if you don't win game five. So it'll be interesting to see, obviously when, when you guys are listening to this, you'll, you'll know kind of where, where they stand, but uh, it'll be interesting for us to, to continue watching this series, which has already proved to be a really good final so far, um, producing a, a couple of really great moments, some really great performances from the star players. Um, and even like some guys who aren't necessarily the star players, like McCall Bridges has, been, has played so well this postseason. Cam, Johnson, Cam Johnson has played so well. Like even Brooke Lopez is turning back the clock. Actually, let me just talk about Drew Holiday for a second. Like his effort is always on point. Like that man never stops fighting. Uh, he gra- he grabbed that great offensive rebound uh, in game four. But just typically speaking, like his defense, his effort is always there. He's rebounding for a guard is good. And it's not like Russell Westbrook where everybody just clears out and he just grabs it. Like, I don't know. I just, he's the type of guy who I like to cheer for. And he is the type of guy whose game I respect uh, just because it's not flashy but it's effective and it's mostly just based on effort, which is like the one thing that you always can control. And I think we mentioned this on a previous episode, but players around the league, like Kevin Durant, for example, religiously praised Drew Holiday for his defense, which to me means a lot more in a lot of situations when players say that kind of thing than when people in the media say it because the ones in the media aren't being defended by these guys night in and night out. So it's good to see Holiday finally in the finals being able to showcase that. Because, yeah, you're 100% right. He's just the type of player that I would love to have on the Hogs or like you know on whatever team that I root for. He's an easy guy to root for. I think the other thing I love about the finals right now, even though the Hawks aren't in it, is that like... Like why I said I like the Mavericks winning in 2011, it's just very different from what from the narrative that was being pushed out all year. It's going to be the Nets and the Lakers, right? Maybe the Nets and the Clippers or the Sixers and the Lakers. You know, there's always like three or four teams and it's treated as a foregone conclusion. It's going to be these teams. And then it ends up being the Bucks, and even more surprisingly, the Suns and even though I want the Bucks to win, like at the end of the day, I love seeing the results like shut up what everyone has been saying all year. So I can't complain. For sure. So we'll see how the rest of the finals play out. <laughs> we'll see if Mike's prediction for the Suns to be swept in the first round ends with them winning the whole thing, or if he gets to save face just a little bit by the Bucks pulling out the victory and in the finals, but we'll be right back. And when we do come back, we'll be breaking down the NBA draft, which is coming up in just a few days. We're very excited. We'll be right back. So with the NBA finals coming to a close, our next big thing to look forward to in the NBA, at least is the NBA draft, which will be Thursday, July 29th. So we wanted to go ahead and do a preview to give you some players and teams to keep your eye on during that draft. So the first thing we want to do is sort of do a pre-draft award show where we do some pre-draft superlatives. So we each did five. We're going to do the highest floor, 
highest ceiling, best international, most overhyped, and most overlooked. So Dave, we got a lot of good prospects here. Who do you think has the highest floor? Yeah, definitely a lot of good prospects. This was kind of a tough choice, choosing all five of these actually, because there are a lot of good guys to choose from. But I went with Jalen Suggs, a guard from Gonzaga. Uh, If you watched any college basketball this past season, especially March Madness, then you probably watched Jalen Suggs balling out. We talked about Drew Holiday earlier in the show, and I think that's a pretty good comparison to Jalen Suggs because we we talked about Drew Holiday's effort and his defense. And I think that those are things that Jalen Suggs can bring every single night to your team. Uh, Jalen Suggs is probably a little more athletic, though. He's a definitely a threat in transition, both playmaking and scoring. And he's the type of guy who's going to be able to impact the game in a lot of different ways. Uh, he'll give you great perimeter defense. He's got amazing, really solid intangibles, especially for a 19-year-old. His playmaking, maybe he's not your true point guard per se, but he's still a guy who can give you secondary playmaking at the very least um, and play either one of those guard positions. So it's kind of hard for me to see a scenario where he's not a viable long-term starter at minimum. And it's very likely to me that he could end up becoming a star. But at the very least, we're talking about floors. I don't see a a situation where Jalen Suggs isn't, you know, at the at the very least, a good role player for your team for the next like ten years or something. So, Jalen Suggs is is my guy for their highest floor. Jalen Suggs really stood out to me during March Madness. I think it was in the Final Four when he had that insane chase down block that he then recovered and made that great outlet pass. That's defense, playmaking, and heart all displayed inside of ten seconds. I think that's a great player to pick. I wouldn't be surprised to see him take a high leap in the draft. Not in the sense that he's going from a low pick to a high pick, but I wouldn't be surprised to see him shoot like even higher than people are projecting in a lot of these mocks. Say that. My highest floor, I definitely cheated. Cade Cunningham. Projected number one pick for a reason. I mean, what can we say? Uh, 20 point per game score. He was top two on his team in all five of the major categories. He's 6'8". As a guard, he's drawing Luka comparisons for a lot of reasons. I mean, he lacks a little bit of that explosiveness, but he's really, really shifty. He has a good feel for the game. He can put the ball in the basket. The ceiling is like MVP, right? But the floor to me is like still a solid starter. Even if he's like, to me, worst case scenario, he's not the star of the team, but he's a great role player, like quality starter for over a decade type of player that you can just add to your lineup. I'm kind of, it's not a great comparison, but I'm kind of thinking like Gordon Hayward where in on the right team, you know, when Gordon Hayward was on the jazz, he was the defined star of the team, but then he gets traded and he's still a player that can make a positive impact because he um, makes good passes. He can score when he needs to. So I like Kate Cunningham as a long-term starter, probably a multi-time all-star, potentially an MVP, but as a floor, I think he's got, got a pretty safe one. Yeah, for sure. Is When you have height like that and you can still kind of operate like a point guard, then you're already going to be a very valuable asset. You know, his, his playmaking, like his, his playmaking is going to translate. And 
he's already shown an ability and a willingness to close out games and be the guy. And that kind of mentality is something that you need going into the NBA. So I think that's a, that he was also a guy I was considering as well for highest floor and it could be highest ceiling as well, but not to mention he's six, eight with a seven foot wingspan. It's not like he's going to be a defensive liability either. And he showed the ability to get steals and blocks at the college level too. So this isn't like someone who, if he doesn't take over on offense and he's a bust. Yeah, exactly. So moving on to highest ceiling, I've picked Jalen green. Uh, Jalen green played on the G league ignite team, kind of the first iteration of that, that we've seen. And he held his own. Uh, he actually, he more than held his own. He was, he showed that he's ready for the NBA based on his athleticism and his shot making. I look at him and I think maybe he he's a Donovan Mitchell type where he, he can dunk on you. Um, he can hit every shot and he can be that guy to kind of close out the game for you when you need to. He can work on his playmaking some. He's definitely a shooting guard, not a point guard. Uh, but that's something that you can learn over time. And if he does learn to do that, be that guy who can, you know, if he's getting double teamed, find the right pass, um, then I, I think he could end up being the best player in this draft, even better than Cade Cunningham or Evan Mobley, Jalen Suggs. Jalen Green, to me, with his that athleticism, his scoring talent, like at the end of the day, if you can score, you can put the ball in the basket better than, you know, not necessarily anybody else, but if you're up there and you're going to put in a position to succeed, then you have the chance to be, you know, an MVP type talent. And I think Jalen Green has already shown that he can compete in the G League with, you know, guys who maybe aren't in the NBA, but are close. Um, And he'll be able to translate that with whatever team he ends up with. We talked about Chris Middleton earlier and his impact on the Bucks, because now the Bucks are when Middleton's playing well. The Bucks have a player that can go out, find his own shot, put the ball in the basket. Players like that are so valuable, especially making deep playoff runs. While his game isn't that similar to Jalen Green, we see the value there of a pure scorer that can get, that can attack the rim, that can hit outside shots. Whether it's that he's the MVP or like fulfilling a major role like as that go-to scorer on a team like built around him there's absolutely high value in that my highest ceiling guy this is not the first time we talked about him you talked about him on the last episode scotty barnes florida state scotty so six nine seven two wingspan 227 pounds already great size right um, you mentioned this every drill at the combine he participated in. One of the big takeaways for me with Scotty Barnes is the intangibles. He clearly wants to succeed. He has the drive to improve. His teammates love him. He plays with this intensity and this emotion that shows like he cares about winning. He cares about growth. He, he gets into the game. He hustles. Right, I see him as like a major, I don't want to say culture changer necessarily, but a player that can contribute to an improved morale on a team, which given he's going to be a really high pick, almost certainly, 
odds are the team that picks him is going to need that like big cultural uh, influence. Also looking at just his game altogether. He's a great defender. He can really guard one through five. Since you talked about him on the last episode, I've gone back and watched so much, so much video on him. He switches on to guards because he has great lateral movement. He switches on to bigs because like, he has decent size, but he also has that intensity. I'm not saying that he's going to get like go in and lock down Joel Embiid or anything. But I'd be stunned to see him get bullied either. So a player that can defend all five positions realistically with great playmaking instincts. His one like low point was his shooting, which is like the most teachable thing in basketball if you're willing to learn. And there's nothing about his character that tells me he's going to be like a Ben Simmons that refuses to learn how to shoot. I don't see why he can't become an MVP, the the next like premier two-way player. And the comparison he's gotten a lot of is Draymond Green. I see him with more offensive potential than that. You freaking ready for this one? Ceiling, Scottie Pippen. Well, he's already halfway there. With the name. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, keep in mind, I'm saying ceiling. Don't walk away from this saying that I said he is definitively going to be the next Scotty Pippen. But an elite defender with playmaking instincts that can be the best player on a team. Obviously, he wasn't the best player on the team with Jordan. But when Jordan wasn't there, he was the clear best player. And then when he left there, he was the best, right? So I'm not saying that he will ultimately lead a team to a championship. But it's possible. It's definitely possible. I I think for me, Scotty Barnes is more of a higher floor than a higher ceiling. Uh, he doesn't like he he has good measurables, but he's he isn't the most athletic. And we have seen guys like Luka, uh, like Jokic be successful without having top tier athleticism. Um, it does make me pause just, just a little bit on a guy who can't really create his own shot and doesn't really have that athleticism that, that you'd like, but everything that you said is, you know, is spot on um, his, his defense and his intangibles, his playmaking, everything that you said, like he's going to be, a very good player for a long time. And I'm excited to see where he ends up and how he develops over time. So moving on to uh, best international prospect, there are, I think three kind of top international prospects uh, this year, at least from where I'm standing. And uh, so it was kind of tough, but I ended up picking Josh Giddy, uh, who played for the Adelaide 36ers in Australia this past year. Uh, kind of similar measurables to Cade Cunningham, um, 68205. He's only 18. He'll turn 19 later this year. Uh, led the NBL, the league in Australia, in assists um, at 18 years old, which is pretty impressive. We've seen a few players come from Australia recently and and you know succeed in the NBA. NBA teams are still trying to figure out whether he could be a point guard or if he's going to be more of that secondary wing playmaker type but either way he's got great obviously great playmaking for his size that's something that you can't really teach and he's obviously going to be a a valuable asset to your team in that regard 
he's still developing. I mean, this is a guy who's, like I said, he's 18 years old. He's still developing a jumper. He's not necessarily going to be a great defender. He might, he'll probably be able to hold, hold his own just with his length, but there's a lot of room for growth and he's already competed. I said this about Jalen Green as well. He's already competed against professionals. It's not college. Um, he's playing against a, a lot of guys who are older than him, more experienced, bigger in a lot of cases. And he was able to hold his own and more than hold his own by leading the the league in assists. So Josh Giddy, definitely a guy to watch, uh, to watch out for and kind of a late riser in this year's draft class. But uh, I'm, I'm pretty convinced by what I've seen from him so far. It's always really telling to me when prospects have an obvious feel for the game. It shows that those prospects are already comfortable and are seeing the game maybe like a step ahead, right? Especially, like you said, in the case of Josh Giddy, playing against a lot of like older professionals as opposed to like young kids that are still like developing and everything. One thing I've seen as it relates to Giddy that I really like is this idea of him potentially being drafted by the Spurs. I think that would be a great fit for him and just for fun. They've seen an Australian point guard work out in Patty Mills. Pop always seems to have a knack for like finding the right foreign gems. And you know what what better coach to go to. So hopefully that's where he ends up. I think it would be the best spot for him. But yeah, I really I do like that pick, especially for his feel for the game. My best international is Usman Garuba coming out of Real Madrid. I heart defense. I also heart high motor. And that's like the thing with Usman is no plays off, just tenacious on defense. 6'8". It's like a 7-3 wingspan, I think. He's not just fierce on defense. He's fierce on the glass. But something I said about Scotty Barnes that you can say about Usman is that ability to guard multiple def- multiple positions, right? He can step out and play on the perimeter. He can get down low and harass opposing bigs. The reason I have him as best international, even though he doesn't really have much offense to speak of, is because defense and motor translate. Like you don't have to adjust for like the spacing on offense in terms of like, is this player going to shoot as well as he did in college? Um, Same with playmaking. Uh, to an extent, like if you worry about, will a player see the game the same way? Defense, you know he's going to get out there, he's going to hustle, and he's going to produce thanks to his size, athleticism, and ferocity. I think any team that drafts Usman knows they're getting a project on offense, but a stud on defense. I, I will. I do want to mention the other, like the third international prospect that we didn't choose. Uh, his name is Alperin Shingun. I think that I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, I I looked it up. <laughs> I tried. Um, he played in Besiktas, or he played for Besiktas in Turkey. And the kind of the sense on this guy is kind of all over the place. He's six nine, so kind of a tweener. Not really a big, but not really a wing. But he averaged nearly nineteen points per game, sixty three percent shooting. He's kind of a old school type of guy. 
post scorer. Uh, rebounds pretty well for his size. His potential is kind of more like, can he develop more as a passer, like a Jokic type? Can he be a shooter uh, and and have that be able to step out on the perimeter and be a threat from the outside? He's probably going to be a liability on defense, or at least not a great defender. But he can he's shown that he, can, he has the tools to be a productive NBA player. Maybe an unorthodox one, but he definitely deserved a mention here. And uh, all signs point to him being drafted in top fifteen, top twenty of this draft. He definitely has potential, and he's absolutely worth mentioning. You can tell me if you agree with this or not. I feel like what may have swayed us towards Giddy and Garuba is it just seems like the two of them have more clear roadmaps in terms of translating their success overseas into success in the NBA, where like uh, Shenjun can definitely be productive. I'm not saying he can't. It just seems a lot easier to plug in Garuba as a defender and to take Giddy's feel for the game and develop that into a playmaker role. Now we're going to move into our most overhyped prospect. And speaking of effort and speaking of intangibles, or in this case, lack thereof, I want to talk about Jalen Johnson from Duke, kind of. So Jalen Johnson is a guy who, playing for Duke, one of the best schools in the nation, obviously, ended up leaving the program. And it's kind of unclear as to exactly why that happened. But for me personally, that's just that just puts a bad taste in my mouth. You have one chance, for, or I guess for a lot of teams, you have one chance to draft a guy in the first round to help your team. I don't want to risk it on a guy who, if you're telling me you can't get along with Coach K, and succeed at Duke, then like, what more do you want, man? Like, I don't know. To be fair, we don't know exactly all of the behind the scenes stuff, but that just puts a bad taste in my mouth. Like, if you want to be a professional, then you should approach college in a professional way if you want to be treated like that. And he didn't really. Um, As far as on the court goes, he's a good passer for a bigger guy. He's he's a four, he's 6'9", 220. He's a, he's a decent rebounder as well, but he he really needs to work on his half-court game and his jump shot. He's also known for not necessarily always putting the best effort out there, which you can probably guess by his exit from the program. So maybe some teams take him off their board entirely. Maybe some teams like what they see on the court and think that they can coach him out, you know, coach the bad habits out of him. And, and coach him how to shoot, coach him how to be better in the half court. It just sounds like a lot of work to me. And there are a lot of guys who I think deserve the the chance more than he does. So we'll see. He could go top 10. Uh, maybe he falls and maybe he, you know, goes in the latter half of the first round. We'll just have to see. I wouldn't be shocked if the Pelicans take him. This seems right up their alley in so many ways. Because it's like, on the one hand, Especially if they keep Lonzo, it's like you got a team that you that wants to push the tempo, right? And Jalen Johnson is a great player in transition. Like that's where he shines, whether it's making passes in, on the fast break or using that explosiveness to finish at the rim. The Pelicans also have a habit of drafting players and then them 
not wanting to be there anymore. <laughs> see Anthony Davis. See reports that Zion is unhappy. Chris Paul. Chris Paul. Like, DeMarcus Cousins. Yeah, I was about uh, to say DeMarcus Cousins, although, like, to be fair, that's not a Pelicans thing. That's a DeMarcus Cousins thing, but yeah. I, I do think, like, I agree with you completely. I would not draft Jalen Johnson, especially if I were a small market team, because the the higher market teams, your LAs, your New Yorks, are often those, like, really appealing destinations, especially for these young players, right? Um, I just wouldn't be able to trust that I'm going to get more than, like, the rookie contract before being forced to sign and trade this guy. Or like, you know, sign him to the extension so he gets the money he wants, then trade him and probably not be appropriately compensated based on the skill. I would not take the risk on it. My most overhyped player. This hurts me. I'm a Michigan fan. But I gotta do it. Franz Wagner, most overhyped. I didn't think he was ready. When he declared for the draft, I didn't think he was ready for, uh, to go to the draft. Somehow... I've seen him go as high as nine. I don't know how I've seen that, but I'm seeing it. And let's let's look at the positives real quick first, right? Six nine. He hasn't had his wingspan measured in like two years, but the last time it was measured, it was plus three to his height. So if that's remained true, then it, he's six nine with a seven foot wingspan. He's got good, like decent enough instincts as a slasher. He lacks a little bit of that explosiveness but he can still finish. He was top three on Michigan's team in all the five major categories, although I will say third on the team in scoring at 12 points a game. Sort of the big appeal to Franz Wagner is that defense. He has the length and relative mobility. The last time we saw Franz Wagner in a game was against UCLA, where Johnny Juzang was going off, often being guarded by Franz Wagner. And it's not just that Juzang scored like 28 in that game, but it was that Juzang scored multiple times on him late in the game. And then Tiger Campbell scored on him late. And then Jules Bernard scored on him late game. So this like premier defender for us is just getting targeted basically. And then we take into consideration that Isaiah Livers, the best player and clear leader of that Michigan team, wasn't playing, right? So we look to Franz Wagner to step up into that leadership role for this game. He scores four points on one of 10 shooting, 0 of four from three. And we have the ball with like, I think eight seconds left. He gets a wide open look for the go ahead three and he straight up air balls it. My point here isn't that he had a bad season. It's that when it mattered most, when the lights were brightest, he was trash. And I, I thought at that game, or like watching that game, I thought it would really be a good idea for him to take one more year, let Juwan Howard work with him for another year, and show that he can handle the spotlight. I'm worried that he's just going to be like Mo Wagner. Had a, his older brother had a good season at Michigan. He got drafted um, in the first round. And it's not like he's had a great NBA career. He's like a Wizards bench player. And I'm just worried that Franz is just going to be the next Wagner bench player out of Michigan. I feel like that's a low-key way of just dissing somebody. It's like, he's a Wizards bench player. Like, he can't even start. Like, 
<laughs> ah, poor wizards. Uh, a couple things on what you said. Uh, ironically, Ju Zhang ended up deciding to go back to school, and, and Wagner didn't when Ju Zhang was the one who was tearing him up in March Madness. So, yeah. Um, maybe Wagner could have used a little bit more seasoning. I do think you were a little bit too close to this um, as a Michigan fan, as somebody who wants Michigan to do well because of you, but otherwise doesn't really care. Like I can see why people are looking at him in the lottery just because he can do a lot of different things. Well, maybe he doesn't have that, you know, closing instinct. Maybe he's not cut out to be the star guy, but there's still value in being a, a, a versatile guy who can, you know, in most games play it, play solid defense and, uh, most of the time he's not going to air ball three point shots. Like he's a decent shooter, but yeah, I, he definitely choked in that game. And that, that was the biggest game. So you'll always have question marks. And I will just say, cause we've talked about a couple other players in their defense today. We talked about Uzman Garuba and Scotty Barnes being like having that versatility to guard multiple positions. And you talked about Jalen Suggs and he's his defense as a point guard. Part of my concern with Franz is just like, who's he going to guard? Because he doesn't have all of the strength to guard players that are around his size. And he he doesn't have quite the right step, it seems, to guard smaller guys. It, I, I get that the, the tools are there in terms of his size. I get the potential. I, I'm just, hey, maybe I'm being too harsh. Uh, maybe I'm just salty about the UCLA game, but I'm just looking at the NBA like I don't know where Wagner's niche comes in. Yeah, it's a fair point. We're, we'll just have to see. Uh, so now my most overlooked player. So this is I, I try to go in the second round for this and, and uh, see if there was a guy who I thought was being overlooked. And I found him. Um <laughs> imagine that uh <laughs> anyways um so this dude's name is joe wieskamp he's a shooting guard for, out of iowa uh 21 years old um and wieskamp is a guy who i think could contribute right away for a contending team uh, he had a, a pretty strong performance at the combine he was already profiling as a shooting specialist type. Uh, he, he made 46% of his threes on pretty solid volume for Iowa. Uh, but he's also a pretty good athlete. Um, he's got above average length and he should be able to hold his own on defense as well. He's not really a, a playmaker type and he's not, he's not going to create his own shot per se, but as a guy who who's, a, you know, a plus athlete, a guy who's a knockdown three-point shooter and can hold his own on defense, that that to me sounds like a guy who could contribute maybe like a role player type of way, maybe off the bench, maybe like a fifth starter type, but a guy who could contribute right now. And middle of the second round is kind of where his projections are right now. Um, I think that's a steal, honestly. We've seen pl- plenty of players on the Bucks and the Suns who kind of fit that same profile and have made a, a pretty good impact on on the series so far and on their team. So 
uh, Joe Wieskamp is, is my pick for most overlooked. I agree completely in that being a steal. This isn't me saying like, oh yeah, he should be a lottery pick. What are y'all thinking? But he's the player that if you see his name fall to you on like, at like that 35 to 40 number, he's worth being excited about because he absolutely can be plugged in right away. I think where a lot of people make mistakes in the draft is thinking that, oh, we walked away with two players. They need to have star potential or anything. Some players are meant to be role players and there's no reason Wieskamp can't be one right away. You hit the nail on the head there. Ironically, my most overlooked is also at Iowa. Unplanned. I got lots to say. This is basically going to turn into that's disrespectful. Just heads up. Let me talk. Luca Garza, man. What kind of world do we live in? Where a, where a man can give his all to a school for four years. So I'm going to call back to some stuff we've said. We talked about like loyalty concerns with Jalen Johnson. None of that with Luca Garza. Four years at Iowa, and he's been balling the whole time, especially the last two years. He's put up like around 24 and 9 both years. Like straight up dominating the last two years. One freaking player of the year this year, right? Best player in college. The last time we saw him in a game, like outside of the combine, they were losing. They lost to Oregon in the second round of March Madness, right? I talked about Franz Wagner, like, choking when the lights were brightest, right? Well, this wasn't Luca Garza's fault because he dropped 36 and 9 in that game. And he was clearly giving every single thing he had to that game. This wasn't on him. He shoots efficiently, like 55%. Um, he didn't have the best combine, but we're seeing more videos come out and more reports come out that his shooting stroke has improved. He's looking in better shape. He's lost 20 pounds. He's down to like 6'11", like 243 with a, I think, 7'1 wingspan. So he's got decent size. I think this is an issue of potential versus production where, you know, potential always wins, especially in the NBA draft. We just saw him tearing up his his peers. I'm not here to say like he won player of the year, therefore he should go number one or anything. The reason he's most overlooked is I haven't seen him as a first round pick. The last mock draft I looked at had him at 48 to the Hawks, which by all means, uh, not that the Hawks have an extensive history of keeping their second round picks, but the fact that we're looking at him as in like, is he a top 50 player in this draft, even though he was just the number one player in college? That's disrespectful. Come on now. Yeah, I uh, there are some big boards that have him like outside of the top 60, like potentially not even draftable. And I think, I mean, it's one thing to say he should be a first round pick. I don't necessarily think that that's the case, but you can't tell me that you can't, that the player of the year in college basketball can go undrafted. Like I understand there are concerns about his mobility and athleticism and how that'll translate. But like we've been talking about this entire podcast, there are plenty of guys who succeed in the NBA who aren't plus athletes and who aren't super mobile, but, but but they succeed based on technique or based on shooting or or whatever the case might be, right? For goodness sake, Jokic just won MVP and he can't jump onto the curb from the street. Exactly. Like Garza, you know that he's going to give you, a, you know, he's going to space the floor. You know that he can, that he can score. Why not draft him? Have him be like a come off the bench as maybe not like your sixth man, 
but as a guy who can give you consistent offensive production and if we're talking about a second round pick here, if we're talking about like pick number 40 or something like that, like, you know that you're, you're going to get a productive player who's a leader, who knows how to win. At the end of the day, you're looking in the second round, you're either looking for flyers on like maybe like a draft and stash type or a guy who has amazing athleticism and like no feel for the game or whatever, or you're looking for a player who can potentially play a role on your bench fulfill a specific need that your team needs. And Garza is, is a guy who can have a role and one, should 100% be drafted. I would be shocked if he doesn't get drafted. And if he doesn't, then the NBA needs to take a hard look at themselves and decide like, at what point do we even like play the games in college? Why not just everybody line up for the combine and whoever runs the fastest and jumps the highest gets drafted first overall? Spit that. If I'm Luca Garza and I don't get drafted, I'm going, I literally just won play of the year. And in the exit game, dropped 36 and nine. I made improvements to my body. My, my shooting um, is improving. Th- this tape came, like this interview came out where someone was asking him, like, how does it make you feel like reading all the, the negative, uh, the negative reviews about your game and how it translates. And his answer was like, I see it as a checklist. Like it's a to-do list of things I need to improve. Uh, Things Ben Simmons would never say for 200. Like what about him? Is there not to like, and he's got to be, he'd have to be thinking like, what more do I have to do to get drafted? I've got the intangibles. I'm, I've been balling for four years. I'm loyal. Like, come on, man. Yeah. And then you have, Guys at the top of the draft, like Cade Cunningham, for instance, right? You know, they made it to March Madness and Cade Cunningham didn't play well. Like, I think people were forgetting that. Like, he didn't play well in March Madness at all. And yet he already knows, like, well, I can I can just sit out. I don't have to do anything. I only, like, I'm only going to interview with the, or the, the team that has the first overall pick. I don't even need to do anything else. Meanwhile, you got the guy who's, winning national player of the year, like sweating his balls off, trying to cut weight and improve on all this stuff that people are are giving him and what stuff he needs to improve on. Like, obviously you want, like if you're going to compare the two of those guys, you're going to pick Cunningham every time, but the gap shouldn't be so significant that Kate Cunningham can be number one on your big board. And Luca Garza can be number 61. So that wraps up our, uh, our pre-draft superlatives. Um, and now we're going to move into breaking down um, some different teams who, when we've set, sorted them into three different categories, we've each picked a rebuilding team, a middling team, like potentially making the playoffs, potentially on the cusp of making the playoffs, and then a contending team. Uh, so we each picked one of those and we're going to, we're going to break those down and, uh, kind of give you some things to look out for um, areas of, of need for those teams where they're, where they're going to be picking at all that kind of stuff. So Mike, if you want to go ahead and start off with your rebuilding team, rebuilding team, I chose is the Houston Rockets 17 and 55 last year. It's the worst record in the NBA. James Harden left and so did their success. They, <laughs> what do they have? 
They have John Wall and his stupid contract. <laughs> oh my gosh. They have Eric Gordon, who they who they would be wise to trade. They have Jay Sean Tate. He looks good. Christian Wood looks good. Kevin Porter Jr. occasionally looks good. He balled out for my fantasy basketball team last season. That one random game where he dropped like 60 or something or 50, whatever it was. I appreciated him for that. Jay Sean Tate balled out for mine. <laughs> so... But the fact that we just stopped there, Jay Sean Tate, Christian Wood, and Kevin Porter Jr. sometimes, they need help. And they have the number two pick. Now, apparently they love Cade Cunningham so much that they really want to get a trade done with the Pistons for that number one spot. Let's say they don't do it. You mentioned Jalen Green earlier with the highest ceiling. That wouldn't be a bad pick here. It's just not who I would take. My recommendation for the Rockets would be would be to ch- take Jalen Suggs. We talked about him at length. I'm not going to add more about Jalen Suggs, but here's why I think this would be great. You would have to sweat your ass off to get a good deal to trade away John Wall with that $41 million contract. If you're the Houston Rockets... Accept your fate for this year, right? You're going to suck again. Swallow that contract. The benefit of that is now you have John Wall, who he's not worth $41 million, but he's not a scrub. Like When he's playing, he's good. And he's been in the league for a while. You don't put the pressure on Jalen Suggs to start right away and ball out right away. Instead, you give him a veteran two-way point guard that he can learn from before handing him the reins. When it's still clear to him in terms of like morale and everything that he's going to be the guy. We've talked about this being a good strategy for quarterbacks in the NFL. Just do the same thing with your point guard here. Then they also have picks 23 and 24. I'll tell you right now, I would be stunned if they took players at both of those. At least one of those is getting traded. Uh, maybe, maybe they take, maybe they reach and grab, and it wouldn't be too much of a reach, but maybe they grab Usman Garuba. Maybe they get a, another big like JT Thor or something from Auburn. Maybe they package that. Maybe they package the two of them into a higher deal, move into that 13-14 range. And maybe they take the gamble for Jalen Johnson. I mean, bless them if they do, for goodness sake. Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Johnson, what a combination. <laughs> you want to convince us you know what you're doing. You take on that $41 million John Wall, John Wall contract, and then you combine those two players. But... Big picture here, we're looking at that number two pick. That's like our big point of interest. Jalen Suggs would be my guy. It seems we have a very clear like top six in this draft. Um, so I'm not saying Jalen Green is the wrong move, but Jalen Suggs would be my guy here. I definitely can see that. Uh, and let's be honest, like the Rockets just need more talent. They were absolutely dreadful last year. And they probably will, like you said, they're still, still probably going to be trash this next year. Um, but it's just building for the future. So uh, the team that I picked for my rebuilding team is, of course, the Thunder. How could I not with all of their picks? Just to recap, they're picking at number six, number 16, number 18, number 34, number 36, and number 55. So those those two first second round picks, I realized the way I just said that is very confusing. So 34 and 36 close to being first round selections as well. So those are still going to be pretty significant assets. 
let's be real here. The Thunder are not going to pick six rookies uh, with all these picks. The most likely scenario is maybe they come out with three rookies, maybe four, um, and they end up trading for either future firsts or they end up packaging and trading up for a guy they really like. Players that they have on their roster right now who they're probably going to want to build around or keep, they've got Lou Dort, they've got Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Alexei Pokusevsky, and Kemba Walker randomly now, who really doesn't fit their timeline whatsoever. But hey, at least for me, I think their areas of need are wings and bigs. They're doing pretty well. They've got Shea Gilgis-Alexander as the future of uh, future point guard, and they've got Kemba as well, uh, who'll be able to pass on some of his knowledge. Guys who I'm thinking for them to to target. Scotty Barnes, I think, would be a great pick if he ends up falling to six, um, which not necessarily falling, but that's kind of where people have been talking about him getting drafted around. Um, I think Scotty Barnes would be a great pickup for them towards middle back half of the of the draft, potentially Garuba. Uh, JT Thor, you mentioned before, maybe they'd take a punt on uh, Shingun as well. <laughs> Realistically, the Thunder are going to, it's almost like the process 2.0. They've got just so many draft picks they don't even know what to do with. Why not take a few, you know, high-risk, high-reward players and see what happens, like Garuba, like Shingun. Um, And then second round, uh, second round guys who I'm looking at, these guys might be in that 34, 36 range. Uh, Cameron Thomas from LSU as a microwave scorer um, might be willing to take a chance on him. Josh Christopher, it's a guy who's super athletic from Arizona and Isaiah Jackson as well. Those are some guys who I, I think they could target, but they've got a lot of different options. They're going to be the player in this draft and, and in 2022 as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they do. Um, if they make any splashy moves, because they certainly have the resources available to do so. And they've got cap space as well. Yeah, I definitely like that. I mean, the Thunder don't just have these six picks in this draft. They're gonna they have so many picks in future drafts. Like when you said the process 2.0, like they're they're doing an even better job than the Sixers in terms of stockpiling assets. And they can basically just throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Um so look for them to take like take risks on players um that we see as like sort of higher higher risk, high reward players, like you said, like Garuba. Um I like that you mentioned Isaiah Jackson, him and JT Thor, both like 6'10 bigs, like um, Jackson a little bit more explosive, JT Thor a little bit more polished, both good players that they could add to. One thing I'll say about Kemba Walker, I mean, you said it, he doesn't fit their timeline. I don't see him playing a full season in OKC. I really don't. I see the Thunder as just being like that middle ground before they make another trade happen. Not necessarily before the draft. I imagine that by the trade deadline, they'll move him to a at least moderate contender for more picks, probably knowing knowing the Thunder. But don't expect Kemba to be there super long term. That's all I'll really predict about that. I picked the Knicks, who we talked about a few episodes ago. They made great strides this year. And we talked about this, you know, um, great improvements on the roster. Coach Tibb has done a great job, got most improved in Julius Randle. 
Uh, R.J. Barrett looks good. Emmanuel Quickly, Mitchell Robinson, Obi Toppin. These all look like good young players that they can build around. They also got exposed in the playoffs because they don't have a true number one option at this moment. I'm not convinced that R.J. Barrett can't someday be that. I'm not saying that he will be. I'm just saying I'm not convinced that he can't be. I am kind of convinced, though, that Julius Randle can't be. I think the Hawks showed that pretty efficiently. He ain't ready for prime time. So what were the Knicks lacking against the Hawks? A player that can go out, get his own shot, particularly on the perimeter, right? The only exception to that was Derrick Rose, who's not going to be there forever. It's like 31. Uh, he was playing limited minutes, and he's on the downside of his career. I'm not saying he's bad. I'm just saying that's the direction he's going in terms of age. The good news, if you're a Knicks fan, is that apparently the Knicks are extremely interested in trading for the Cavs' Colin Sexton, who not only can go out and get his own shot from that guard position and is still very young. I think he's in his fourth year. Don't quote me on that one. But he's very, he is still a very young player. So not only that, and he can light it up in a hurry in select games. He plays defense, and he's explosive. This would be a great player to add to that roster. I'll warn you, the Cavs might want Obi Toppin. Apparently, they they had to make, like, Obi Toppin was drafted one pick after the Cavs pick um, in that draft, and apparently there was a lot of debate in that Cavs organization between, like, or on whether or not to draft Toppin, and he's from Dayton. so. The Cavs might want him in a package for Colin Sexton if that deal is going to work out. And you'll probably have to throw in one of your picks. Now, you have picks number 19, 21, 32, and 58. No, I need to worry too much about 58 right now. Um, So my guess and recommendation for the Knicks would be to try and move Obi Toppin, if you have to, with either 19 or 21 to get Colin Sexton. I think that's worth it. And so what do we do with the other of those two picks? There are a handful of like decent guards in that 18 to 22 range. So just to mention a few, you got Jaden Springer from Tennessee. Eh. You got Sharif Cooper from Auburn, who I'll mention later. You have Trey Mann from Florida, who has shown that he can put points on the board quickly. You have Cameron Thomas from LSU, who you mentioned. And here's the one that I would recommend taking if you're the Knicks. If you manage to get Colin Sexton, that's the the caveat here. Chris Duarte from Oregon. Chris Duarte is probably the best shooter in this draft. Now, he's 24. So there's a little heads up. He's not the youngest guy in the world. But what you were saying about Wieskamp, I would say the same thing about Chris Duarte in that he is the kind of player that you can plug in right away as a role player, 3 and D player. Uh, decent instincts. His playmaking needs a little bit of work, but he also shows hustle on defense. He's got a decent proclivity for like these chase down blocks, um, which you don't always see in like that three and D player, which uh, makes him look pretty interesting. My best case scenario then for the Knicks becomes going into next year with a roster that's basically composed like a starting five or like sorry of notable players like Colin Sexton, Chris Duarte, R.J. Barrett, Julius Randle, Mitchell Robinson, Emmanuel Quickly. To me, if the Knicks like draft night ends looking like that, I'd be very happy as a Knicks fan. Yeah, 
I, I've got to say, I'm not sure that Duarte is the best shooter in the draft. I think Corey Kispert would have something to say about that. But, um, but yeah, I think the Knicks, I mean, if you're going to give up Obi Toppin and a pick and get Colin Sexton, I think you do that right now. If you're the Knicks, like Toppin is definitely talented and it's exciting, but Colin Sexton is definitely way more ready to help you right now. And I think then that's where the Knicks are is, you know, they made the playoffs first time in however long and they need to, they need to get to that next level. So I think that trade more than any prospect would get them there. My team that I picked is the Warriors. So maybe next, maybe this next year, once Clay is back, uh, they they make that jump to contending team just by having Clay back. But so maybe this is cheating a little bit, but it falls within our parameters. I don't think they were a top ten in the NBA or top ten team in the NBA this past year. Like no chance. Steph Curry basically dragged them over the finish line. Um, but, you know, as far as notable players, they've got Steph, Clay, Draymond, obviously. James Wiseman, who they drafted number two last year. Uh, Juan Toscano-Anderson has kind of been a random pickup for them who's played really well. Uh, and they've got Andrew Wiggins, who he's just Andrew Wiggins, isn't he? Um, they've got one key free agent who's going to be Kelly Oubre. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with him if they do a sign-in trade, if they try to keep him. Uh, their cap space isn't ideal, uh, but I'm, I would guess they're probably going to lose him either just through free agency or through a sign and trade. So areas of need I'm looking for players who can help right away. As soon as clay comes back, the warriors are still in championship mode. Maybe they're, they're still, they're past that dynasty, but I think from their part, as long as they have Steph and Draymond and a healthy clay, like they're going to be contending for a title. So maybe a secondary ball handler, wing depth, or other areas of need. So they're going to be picking at 7 and at 14. So this is pretty good for a team who's pretty close to contention. Guys who I'm looking at, um, they could either pick two rookies to help out, or maybe they try to package those two and move into the top five, because there are those like kind of top six players who are, you know, kind of around the league or viewed as the top six players. So maybe they, maybe they make a move and, you know, go to three or four or something. Um, and maybe they, they get Jalen Suggs. I think he would be a really good, uh, addition to that roster. I think a guy like James Boo Knight, um, for all the, for all the, uh, the shit that you talked about, Franz Wagner, like, I think he could be an option for them as well. I think he could fit in. Um, Corey Kispert, who I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, shooting wise would just be an, another option, kind of like a Joe Harris type for, for the Nets where you sure you can leave him open and you can double whoever you can double clay or, or Steph, but he'll make you pay from the corner. Um, a couple of the, or the two Baylor point guards who we haven't, or the two Baylor guards, I should say, who we haven't mentioned yet, Jared Butler and Davion Mitchell. I think either one of those guys, Jared Butler's medicals permitting, would be a really good fit for them as well as a secondary ball handler, uh, guys who can uh, play playoff minutes for them, I think, right away based on what we saw from their championship run um, last year. So that's what I would probably recommend for the Warriors is maybe pick up one of those Butler, or Butler, one of those Baylor guards 
Um, and then maybe a guy, a shooter like Corey Kisper at 14 or something like that. Or maybe you move up and you, and you try to go for Jalen Suggs if you're really sold on him. Uh, but the Warriors are in a pretty good position right now with those two picks. You hit the nail on the head about them still being, I mean, for our purposes today, middling team, but the, a healthy Warriors team is championship ready. So they don't need a superstar coming out of this draft. They need someone that can just come in and produce, right? Now, if they go ahead and get Jalen Suggs, that's great. Like, good for them. But if they walk away with Davion Mitchell, who I love, and don't let all the similarities fool you, he is not related to Donovan Mitchell, even though they even share a jersey number. But that's beside the point. If they walk away with Davion Mitchell and Corey Kispert, I think those are both players, like you said, they can just step in, contribute right away. And then if you add them to a healthy Steph, Clay, and Draymond, and James Wiseman for that matter, that's a championship team. Top five in my mind. I'm so happy to say this. Contending team, Atlanta Hawks. Let's do it. 41 and 31. Yeah, 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 whatever. Two games away from the finals. And that 41 and 31... We're better than what that shows because that's including our Lloyd Pierce time. We talked about this before on a past episode. Once Nate McMillan came in, we had like the best record. And I don't think I don't think anybody can say now that the Hawks aren't a top ten team based on their performance. No chance. Yeah, not at all. We we're gonna have like our big question for the offseason is what's gonna happen with John Collins. The restricted free agent. I've heard some conflicting rumors. So on the one hand, Travis Schlank came out and said, like, you know, the tax is something you want to avoid, but we're willing to spend the money for a championship. Good. That's what we want to hear. We've also heard that we want to reach a, quote, reasonable agreement with John Collins, which tells me they do have a breaking point. Like they have they probably have a figure in mind where they're saying this much is too much to spend. And if someone offers you that much money, we're not going to match it. So we're going to have to figure out what happens here. But we've got picks number 20 and 48. We mentioned earlier, Luca, like 48 is where we're seeing Luca Garza, like in that area. Um, so we can get a solid player um, at 48 if we choose to keep our second round pick, which we don't very often do. Um, Another player, now this one is a, a bit of a project, but it would interest me at 48. De'Ron Sharp from UNC. He didn't hit a three the entire time he was at UNC. This is not a stretch big at all. Okay. Uh, he's 6'11", 265 with a seven-foot wingspan. A uh, big concern here is not only can he not shoot threes, he's like a 50% free throw shooter. That's a yikes. However... When I say big body, he plays with insane physicality. He is not to be bullied. And one area that I was looking at on our team, especially against the Sixers, was like Dwight Howard was coming in off the bench. And between like just savvy moves and straight up like size and physicality, he was out muscling our bigs down low for these off- for these offensive rebounds. Daron Sharp looks to me like the kind of player that we can put in to prevent that from happening. Um, 
someone that we can just say, go be a big force down low, get some boards, set some good screens. We'll feed you on pick and roll, but really rebound and be, be a presence. Like a Mitchell Robinson type. Yeah. I think he would do well there. We would just have to be careful with that 50% free throw shooting. Well, and if you're thinking about Capella, we're going to have him, Okongwu. Like, I think we need a big who can stretch the floor. Um, that's why one of the reasons why John Collins like has been a, a really good fit with Capella is that he can obviously dunk the crap out of the basketball, but like he can he can stretch the floor as well. But you can't really play Okongwu and Capella together, and you really couldn't play either of those guys with a sharp. Right. So it definitely limits us. And who knows? Like I've seen Kongwu's name floated in trade rumors. So this so Sharp would make more sense if that ends up being a thing. But I mean you're right. Like we can't play him with either Capella or Kongwu realistically in today's NBA. But what was our other big need? Like it's been our big need for the past two years. When Trey sits down, we don't have anyone facilitating our offense. This isn't to say like Lou Williams couldn't come in and get buckets, but I'm talking about straight up like running the offense and setting up teammates, and we just didn't have that. So maybe we look at a guard at that 20 spot. We got Trey Mann, who can score, but that ain't it. He went to Florida, so it's a no. <laughs> To me, it would just be like, well, whatever I just said about Lou Williams, but here's a rookie. Um, Sharif Cooper from Auburn. We got like four turnovers a game. I mean, that's what Trey does. Yeah. Trey gets like four turnovers a game. (laughs) Exactly. But to me, it's saying that like that comes, that's like the product of when the ball is in your hands all the time and you're being relied on to create the offense. And that's something that's coachable. And we have a good coach. But looking at the positives, Sharif is really quick and he's electric with the ball. Like fantastic ball handling skills. There's not really a pass that he can't make. Yeah, he gets turnovers. He was also averaging over eight assists a game on top of like 20 points a game or somewhere in there. I think if we had Sharif Cooper come in when Trey Young isn't on the court, then we could, in theory, have someone facilitating at all times. And Sharif isn't locked down by any means, don't get me wrong. But he's also not quite a liability. He's not great as a switch defender. He's just not the type of point guard that gets bullied for points. Uh, He doesn't get targeted, let's say. So we could put in another playmaker without feeling like he's just going to get attacked over and over again. So Sharif Cooper, maybe De'Ron Sharp, like depending on like, uh, how that works out. We could also look at Kai Jones at some level. But our two big needs there are definitely like a big body and a, a bench playmaker. So those are the two positions I'm looking for the Hawks to fill here. Yeah, I agree 100%. Backup point guard, a big who can, like, because Capella is supposed to be the guy. And let's be honest, he pretty much got bullied by Embiid, which, let's be fair to Capella. Embiid kind of bullies everybody. But. Yeah, it just really, like, Capella had to be in the game when Embiid was in the game. We didn't have anybody who compete with him. So I, I think that makes sense for sure. The contending team that I picked is the Brooklyn Nets. 
and they are going to be picking at 27, 44, 49, and 59. So they've got three second rounders, none of them especially high, and then they're picking at the back of the first round. Obviously, key players, Harden, Durant, Kyrie, we know the drill, uh, Joe Harris as well, and, and DeAndre Jordan. Uh, but they've got a, a few key free agents as well. Spencer Dinwiddie, who was kind of the forgotten man there after he got injured, he's going to be uh, a free agent. Jeff Green, Bruce Brown, who ended up playing a bigger role for them uh, this year as well. And Blake Griffin is going to be a free agent. So uh, areas of need, immediate contributors, kind of the same thing as the Warriors. The Nets are in championship or bust mode. Thankfully, this past year it was bust. Uh, Appreciated that. And defense. They need more defense because their entire team is built on we are going to outscore you and we're not going to play that much defense. And um, so they have a couple, they have a few options. Maybe they try to package some of their second round picks and move up a little bit. Um, maybe they just trade those for a future pick later on. Um, I'm kind of looking at 27 and maybe the second round, they keep one of those at like 44 or 45, something like that. First round, uh, d- depending on kind of where things fall, we mentioned Chris Duarte before. He might go before this, but people, uh, teams might be scared off by his age. I think he would be a great fit, like you you previously mentioned him. Uh, JT Thor would be another guy, a, a big who could come off the bench. And then second rounders, um, Joe Wieskamp, who I mentioned before, I think he would be a good fit. Herbert Jones from Alabama, a defender who could come in and, and help as well. And then we mentioned him very briefly, Isaiah Livers. He's a guy... Went to Michigan. Uh, he could come off the bench as well, provide you some solid minutes, um, good shooting, and some intangibles as well. So the Brooklyn Nets, they've got their their three big guys, and they've got Joe Harris, a uh, slightly washed-up version of DeAndre Jordan. But they need some more depth because we already saw Harden in and out of the lineup, Kyrie in and out of the lineup, Durant had to do it all on his own. And we just saw Durant have to miss the entire season because of his Achilles. So they need more depth. They can't just rely on these three stars being healthy. They need more contributors who are going to be able to step in and, and, and help out. So we'll see what direction they go. So it's time for bold predictions for the NBA draft. We did these for the NBA playoffs. Y'all already know how that went. So we're going to do it again for the NBA draft because, you know, we love putting ourselves in these positions, I guess. One of two things will happen. Either A, we'll be right and it'll give us a little bit of redemption. Or we'll be wrong again and it'll just pile on like, oh my gosh, how stupid can I be? Right. Although we're still going to be, I think, pretty bold with these predictions. So, you know, what we're talking about high risk, high reward prospects. This is the... These are the types of predictions that we're going for. So I'm going to let Mike go first, give his bold prediction for the NBA draft. What you got? There will be a trade on draft night. Don't worry, I'm not done. Oh, okay. okay. There, there, there will be a trade inside the top five. So whether that's the Pistons moving out of that one spot or not, we currently have from one to five 
Pistons, Rockets, Cavs, Raptors, Magic. My bold prediction is that the top five players do not go to those respective teams. All right. I I think that I wouldn't be surprised if I saw a trade in the top five. I think it would be crazy if the Pistons traded out of number one, though. That'll that'll be that would just be crazy to me if they did that. But all right, my bold prediction for the 2021 NBA draft is half of all of the picks in the draft are going to be traded. <laughs> so, like I said, go big or go home. So that would be 30 of the picks. 30 out of the 60 picks are going to are not going to go to their previous like their original owners. Will this happen? Probably not. But if it does, then like y'all can just look at me as the bull prediction king, you know what I'm saying? So, uh to be fair, we always see a ton of second round trades every year. So, I'm mostly like thinking second round trades and not first round trades. But I don't know. I just got a feeling we didn't see too many trades last year. Uh, so I'm I'm hoping, just because of my bold prediction, that we're just going to see a flurry of action uh, on Thursday. And who knows? With my luck, it'll probably be like 29 trades and not 30, but we'll see. So you got teams like, that we've, or like the Thunder that we've mentioned that have like their six picks or whatever. And they're not keeping all of them. There's no chance the Thunder walk away with six rookies. But I'm just picturing, like, I mean, every other pick, either Adam Silver or Mark Tatum are coming up. We have a trade to announce. Like, that, that is I, bold. I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give you that. I was going to say 20 out of the 60, so like, a, so like a third. And then I was like, you know, maybe that's not bold enough. Because... I was gonna, I was gonna get your opinion on whether that was too bold, but then that would have ruined the surprise of what that was gonna be. So then I was like, oh, I'll just say it. So I'm probably just gonna regret it, and I should have just said one third. But which is still, I think that's actually fairly reasonable. Twenty out of the sixty picks being traded when you think of all the second round picks that are traded. You never know. But maybe I'll, uh, you know, if there's a third traded, then you, I can get like half credit or something. Is that how this works? I don't know. Whatever. Well, we'll be waiting to see if that, if either of our bold bold predictions come true. We'd love to hear your bold predictions, which you can share with us on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. We'll be watching out for those. Be sure to post those before the 29th. Don't try and cheat and halfway through post it like you're slick, like you didn't just watch it happen on live TV. But on the next episode, we'll be able to go back and say... Here's how that worked or did not work. So that wraps up our lengthy, admittedly lengthy NBA draft preview. Hopefully y'all have enjoyed that and y'all are going to be prepared going into draft night or at least more prepared than you were. Uh, When we come back, we're going to do the hot seat uh, and we've got a pretty interesting story to talk about in that one. So stick around. All right, everybody. Now we've gotten to that time of the show where we put somebody in the hot seat. Mike, who we got this week? We've got the University of Kansas football program. This is a bit of a story. My gosh. This is like a movie. You got this story that broke 
that happened in 2019 where they had this fullback, Caperton Humphrey, and they paid him like $50,000 in benefits. And basically what they did was they paid him to shut up because he was being harassed and like physically and violently threatened by like four of the defensive players on the team. And the coach, Les Miles, um, who's the coach at the time, apparently like tried to have them settle their differences via full contact drills, like during practice. And there was a point where Humphrey's parents and like brother or something visited. And these four players like came in the room and, uh, and threatened them. And so the dad called the police, but the players left the room before they got there. Also, Humphrey noticed that the lug, the lug nuts of his car had been loosened. And so he was like fearing for his life. And basically Kansas and its athletic director and everything gave him all this money if he would sign this like NDA to make sure like you don't like speak negatively of Kansas or our moral principles or anything just to make sure we stay on the up and up. So now this story is like coming out uh, that all of this is happening. And so like Les Miles and um, the athletic director at the time, Jeff Long, are now under fire for all of this shit going down. Yeah. And this is just like, first of all, you're supposed to be teammates so I don't know if this is like some type of like gang mentality or this is some type of like, you know, I, I don't, who knows exactly what the situation was, but what I'm really looking at is the leadership here. And when Humphrey is, is telling them what's going on and they're like, oh, settle it in practice. I, I just don't understand how you can just say that and, and just kind of brush it aside like that it's just absolutely ridiculous to me um and like going to his apartment like threatening to break in and like loosening the lug nuts on his, the tires of his vehicle like what did this man do i mean it's i i just was reading the story and i just could not believe what i was reading humphrey's family is looking to pursue legal action rightfully so yeah against les miles former athletic director jeff long the compliance director, David Reed, who still works there and just the entire Kansas university athletics program. Like you said, it's kind of like out of a movie shame on all the, all the people involved, the guys who are harassing this dude, the leadership can't, you know, to the entire university of Kansas and, or at least the athletics program. Like this is just crazy. And I'm glad they came out because I'm sorry, $50,000 uh, if they if they sue and all of this stuff is true, they're going to get a lot more than that. I can guarantee that. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Let me just say, we had plenty of candidates for the hot seat this, this time around, but this one freaking took the cake. Like, this is wild shit. So we will absolutely post a link uh, for you to read on our social media, which I recommend you doing because this is insane. Yes, for sure. So that's our hot seat for this week. So now we're going to move into Dave's fun fact of the week. Uh, last time I gave you the history of the smiley face, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. I thought it was kind of fun. This week, 
I'm going to talk to you about Jack Black. So you probably have heard of Jack Black before. Uh, he starred in films like Jumanji, Nacho Libre, School of Rock, one of my personal favorite movies of all time. The Holiday, which I know my mom and my sister like a lot. Um, but what's interesting about Jack Black, maybe even more interesting than the guy is himself or his film career, is Jack Black's mom. Her name is Judith Love Cohen, and she has a very interesting story. So Judith, uh, among other things, danced with the New York Metropolitan Opera Ballet Company, wrote children's books, and worked as an engineer for NASA. So by all accounts, a very talented and an impressive woman. What's very interesting about this, though, is she was one of the main designers of the system that saved the Apollo 13 mission and got them back home safely, which, of course, they made an Oscar-winning film about that, Apollo 13. It was called the Abort Guidance System, and in a very interesting turn of events, the day that Jack Black was born... She left work to go to the hospital, but brought along a printout of a, of a problem she was working on related to this system. She called in the solution to NASA from the hospital later that day after she'd given birth. So this, this woman didn't even stop working while she was at the hospital. She's like, all right, I'm going to solve this like crazy, I'm assuming a crazy math equation or whatever they do in NASA. And then I'm going to give birth. To, to Jack Black and then it's gonna like this call basically on the day that Jack Black was born ended up saving the lives of all these astronauts after the Apollo 13 incident pretty crazy story so there's my fun fact of the week what a badass woman that's awesome <laughs> yeah um I as you might imagine I did not know any of that <laughs> To think of like the impact that she's made on the world, then, in comparison to like how fa- how much more famous than her her son is for being entertaining in movies, which you know not to like shit on actors or anything, but like it's just crazy how how we like prioritize like how we attribute fame to different people for different things and let like certain accomplishments go under the radar, which became a big part of that movie that you were talking about too like was it like hidden figures like like the they made that movie hidden figures like a couple years ago which was also emphasizing like uh women working for nasa but like going under the radar and not being appreciated there are you know there are all kinds of everyday heroes to be fair i wouldn't say someone working for nasa as necessary every day because you know i know i'm not that smart but there are, there are people who I think deserve more recognition, you know, in everyday life. You know, you talk about first you know, first responders, just people who do, you know, who make sacrifices or, or volunteer or or do whatever, you know, who, who deserve to be, you know, have, have their fame just like somebody in movies does like Jack Black. That definitely qualifies as a fun fact. Um I'm always interested to see like what the next one's going to be. So, so far, just to recap in our two editions of Dave's fun fact, we've had the history of the smiley face and 
the accomplishments of Jack Black's mom. Hey, you know. You can't make this stuff up. Yeah. You literally can't because it's true. Um, but yeah, so that pretty much wraps up our show for the week. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed. Uh, <laughs> once again, I'm going to apologize for, I'm not actually, I'm not going to, I'm going to apologize to absolutely nobody. Um, yeah. Conor McGregor lost as well. Yeah. <laughs> suck, Good. Sucks to suck my dude. Uh, n- now that you mentioned it, give me 15 seconds. Classless. Uh, absolutely classless. You get, you get beaten. I don't care if your leg was hurt beforehand or not. You get beaten and then you talk all this shit about the dude's wife and then you make that like shooting, killing motion while you're on the ground. Absolutely pathetic. Yeah. It, it's one thing to like beat each other up in a cage for people's entertainment. It's another thing to bring those people's families into it and also do that while while you're on the ground having had your ass handed to you and then you're still talking this trash. Like, I don't know. But anyway, because let's be real, before it was, before the leg snap, he was getting rocked. There was no competition. I uh-huh. just had to say it. Yeah. So why not add a little bit more time onto this extremely <laughs> lengthy podcast? But hopefully, y'all enjoyed. Uh, I would like to think it's been kind of packed full of interesting content for you guys. Hopefully, you're more prepared for this NBA draft and know what to look for. And Uh, Like Mike said earlier, share with us your bold predictions on social media. Uh, We'd love to hear from you, what your thoughts were on the fun fact. um, And we'll make sure to post that article uh, about Caperton Humphrey and the Kansas University athletics program on our social media as well. So definitely check us out there at Mike and Dave pod and make sure if you aren't already to subscribe and follow the podcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling like it, you know, feeling nice, then we'd appreciate a five-star rating and potentially a review letting us know what you like. Or, you know, if there's something that you have an idea about that you'd like for us to implement or do do different, uh, we'd definitely be open to hearing any of that as well. We're always trying to interact or looking to interact with you over social media. So let us know if there are players that we didn't talk about that you feel like we should have talked about, or if there are players that you're looking forward to see going on draft night. Or, for the heck of it, if you have questions that you want us to address on the next episode, because our next episode will cover the draft after the fact. So, you know, if there's anything that you feel like we really need to address there, let us know. Like you said before, we'll say it again at Mike and Dave Pod. But I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. As always, this has been Mike. And it's been Dave, and this has been the Mike and Dave Podcast. Podcast.